So on Sunday evenings, we've been just working our way directly through the Bible at a couple of chapters a week. Tonight we find ourselves in a well-known story, but probably one that you haven't looked at very often as an adult, and that's the flood, uh, as in Noah's Ark, that flood. And so we're going to pick up in um, the book of Genesis, in chapter 6. If you're in need of a Bible this evening, there's one in the back of the pews right around you. You're welcome to pull that out and um, just six chapters into the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis is where we're picking up tonight. Although officially we're going to start in verse 9 tonight, it's worth reminding ourselves of, um, of what we've just seen. And so, uh, a, by way of summary of where we left off last week, just look at verses um, 5 through 8 here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Now, here again we hit that threshold that we've seen repeated over and over again in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. And so the first one's all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then we saw these are the generations of Adam. Um, and now we've gotten to the generations of Noah. And recognize here, uh, well, two things. Just one as a reminder. Whenever it refers to the generations of, the story it's actually telling is the story of the children. Okay? And so the generations of Noah is the stories of Noah's children, more importantly. In the same way, um, the generations of the heavens and the earth wasn't about the creation of the heavens and the earth, but Adam and Eve, their first occupants, okay? Um, and so here we, we end one story, the story that leads up to Noah, and we begin another, but we are crossing um, at the very least a sectional threshold, but most scholars believe a document threshold, okay? And so we have this genealogy and a summary statement of what the world was like in the end of the last document, and then this story picks up and it tells the story of Noah and the flood. And so notice here that it reminds us uh, of what we already know about Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so it begins with a summary, and this summary is not a timestamp before God t contacts Noah. It's not that he's righteous and blameless and walking with God. Therefore, God says, hey, Noah, watch out. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to flood the earth and build. But this is actually a, a summary description of what is to follow. This is actually a very common technique that you find throughout Hebrew literature where they will either give you a synopsis looking back or a summary looking forward. In this case, it's a summary looking forward, and it won't be the only one. We're going to be reminded of this at the end of the story as well. And so these statements about Noah's character actually operate as capstones, and the content in between fills it out. Now, it's worth mentioning here all the things that we don't learn about Noah. For example, here's something you've probably not noticed before. Throughout the entire duration of the flood narrative, Noah never speaks. Not once. 
you won't find and Noah said anywhere in the next two chapters, even though and God said will occur over and over again, in fact, a total of seven times. It's not until Noah curses his grandson Cain or Canaan and says, cursed be Canaan, that we finally find the words of Noah. One of the reasons that is in the story is not obviously because Noah was mute, uh, but because the emphasis of Noah's life is of hearing as opposed to speaking. He hears and he obeys. And we'll see that pattern repeated as well. But there's this introduction to Noah. And then there's a reminder of what we just read in terms of the world. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, something that we find in Hebrew literature extensively um, is, is wordplay, okay? For example, Noah's name means rest, and we're going to hit that word over and over throughout the story. It's the same word when it says that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, uh, when it says, uh, well, I'll, I'll point it out as we go along, but in this verse, there's a lot of it too, and so the word there for corrupt uh, means to destroy, and so if we use the same word every time it occurs in that verse, in verse 12, this is what it literally says. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was destroyed, for all flesh had destroyed their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to destroy all flesh. Okay? And so there's a repetition here, but there's also a reciprocity, and that's what's important. What you see is man's behavior and a direct and equal response given by God. They have destroyed themselves and the earth, therefore I will destroy them and the earth their home, okay? That doesn't come across so easily on the English, or in the English, um, but in the Hebrew it's pretty, um, pretty clear. Now, there are other occasions in times of judgment where what happens first is God reveals to his prophets that this is what he's going to do and then sends the prophets out to warn the people. In fact, you could argue that Israel's history is a long line of prophetic warnings for the people of Israel. We see it over and over again, especially um, in 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Um, but here, that's not where the emphasis is put. The warning is given, but the warning is primarily for Noah. Now, when you get to later texts in the Bible, it does refer to Noah in these terms as a preacher of righteousness. And so it's worth keeping in mind here that the assignment that God's about to give Noah is a time, uh, time demanding one. Okay. The boat that we're looking at is uh, very large for building in the middle of a desert, very large for the ancient world, not like Titanic size, but when you're building it out of wood with your family, it's very large. And so this is a decades long project. Um, and so, although it's not pointed to here, you can imagine that as this boat is being built, for one, it can be seen for miles, okay, as this contraption is going up. There's nothing like it. It's not like the stone structures, like ziggurats, we'll encounter one of those in a few weeks, um, that, that were known in the ancient world. This is just a giant wood box, and if the dimensions are as rigid as they read, it, it looks like a coffin. It's just a giant wood box. Um, and so, no doubt here, in, 
in um, relationship with Noah's call to build this boat is a call to warn the people, although it's not stated for us here. But nonetheless, the emphasis is on building a boat. He tells him what he's going to do. Um, notice here he hasn't mentioned the method. There's no flood yet. That'll come in a second. But he says, I'm going to do this. And then he gives the command in verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Okay, two things here. First, the word ark. It's such a common word because of familiarity with this story. You probably already have the right picture. Um, the only other place this word is used in the Bible is for the little boat made out of reeds that Moses' mother hides him in and then floats him down the Nile. Okay, So like when we come to the ark, the English word for the ark of the covenant, not the same word. Okay, um, It's pretty clear that whatever the origins of this word are, it does involve water. It's not merely a box. It's not merely a structure, but one that is at least water safe or more likely built for water. And so, as I said, it applies to this little thing that Moses's mother makes as well. Um, the second thing is it says here to make it out of gopher wood, and we don't actually know what kind of wood this is, which I would say is not really that surprising because we're talking about a nautical experiment in the middle of a desert area. The area that the, the story has been set in, remember we started in Eden and then moved east and, and, and more east when it, uh, the, the boat comes to rest, it's in the mountains of Ararat. All of that is not near the sea, it's not near the Mediterranean. Um, at, at this point there's not even reference to a really large lake. Okay? And so, so effectively we're seeing a nautical practice spring up in a non-nautical region. And so whatever this tree is, it's selected most likely because it's capable of something, um, you know, that people aren't used to doing. But nonetheless, he tells him what to make it out of. Verse uh, 14, he says, make rooms in your ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch, which would do what for it? It would make it float, right? It would seal up all the cracks. It would make sure that it doesn't sink. Verse 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubit, cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Okay. And so much like when we get later to the building of the tabernacle, God actually kind of gives the plans here. And they're relatively simple, and they're measured in what here is called cubits. Um, now, this measurement of cubit is a common one across the entire Middle East in the ancient world, but it's not consistent. So in some places, a cubit is as long as, as two feet, it's 24 inches. Um, the Hebrew cubit, the one that's used for the building of the tabernacle, for example, we know is closer to 18 inches long. But the range uh, and the possibilities, there's about seven or eight known cubits in the area that this could be referring to. Um, but if we take the smallest one, which will serve us as we're trying to answer some questions about this boat, that's about 17 and a half feet. That's the smallest it would be. And so these measurements then come out to, in feet, 438 feet long, um, 72.9 feet wide, and 43.8 feet tall. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but that's still just measurements to me. I can't necessarily visualize what that looks like, but it's worth pointing out that it's large. It's, it's a big boat, and it's a boxy boat. It's tall enough in those 48 inches to be considered three stories high. Okay, That one's a little bit easier. Um, but he gives him the measurements, and then he says, verse 16, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above 
and set the door a door in the ark in its side, make it with a lower, second, and third decks. And so, like I said here, it's three layers, three stories. It's got a door in the side. Uh, and then when it says to uh, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, the word there for, for roof is actually a little bit closer to window. It's opening. Um, opening that lets light in specifically is the category that this is coming from. So most scholars believe what is being talked about here is an opening that runs the length of the boat around the top. And so you can imagine the roof coming down and wrapping over the top of the boat, extending further, um, but there's a foot of open window space so you can see out so that there's airflow and those types of things. Um, and then we see here uh, that there's three stories. Okay. Now, here he tells us why. He tells us what the boat should look like, and then verse 17, Behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life, under heaven, everything that's on the earth shall die. I want you to notice in a single sentence here, the emphasis. The emphasis is holistic, isn't it? The emphasis is universal. The emphasis is relatively big. It's all and every. And then if that weren't enough, it's, um, it's everything that's on the earth. It's everything that's under heaven. It's everything that's alive will die. I mean, it, they find every way to say it. What's being nailed down here is the scope of what's about to happen, okay? Uh, and it's, it's a big deal. And this word, by the way, for flood is unique. It's only used in reference to this event, okay? Now, remember that the Hebrews are familiar. In fact, they have a word. We know what it is uh, with, with the Nile that regularly floods to, to support its crops. That's how, how the entire agriculture system of the Nile Delta works, right? The river gets really full, it overflows, and they use that water to irrigate their crops. They use a specific word here that they never use for anything else. In fact, in the New Testament, they follow the same pattern. So when they refer to the flood, the word they use is not the common Greek word for flood. It's the word that's uh, English equivalent would be cataclysm. Okay. And so even the word that's chosen here is, is unique. What's about to happen is intentionally being shown as unique. It's being shown as universal. And so he says, this is coming, but, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in, to you, and you will keep them alive. Also, verse 21, you'll take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Who? The animals. Okay? So here the description is given of why, and then we find out the who. And the who is Noah, his wife, his three sons, who we already met, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as well as their wives. Uh, so eight people in total, and then animals. And I don't think this is really a surprise. I'm just assuming that we know the story well enough, even if all we've ever seen is the animated Donald Duck version in Fantasia, uh, that that doesn't come as a surprise. Um, but it does seem problematic. 
Uh, and it seems problematic for a couple of reasons. One is because every iteration of this we've ever encountered is in flannel graph or animated or it stars Jim Carrey. I mean, all of the approaches are a little bit, um, bit tongue-in-cheek. And so we naturally come in going, uh, two things, is this real? Is it supposed to be real? And then more importantly, because of that question, is it possible? Is, is it possible? Um, and I want to just draw one observation before we, before we look at something in particular. Um, and that is simply here that the wordage is not of Noah, you know, pounding the pavement and hunting for animals. You know, and having a checklist and checking the boxes. It specifically he speaks here of God divinely bringing the animals to Adam. That's, or sorry, to Noah. Um, that's relatively important because it removes a massive undertaking from the possibility. And it's worth mentioning that we are very familiar with the fact that the animal kingdom has a migratory sense for, for crazy uh, natural happenings like floods, like fires, like earthquakes that seems to drive them out of dangers, out of dangers way, and we still don't know how that works, okay? Um, and so this is not necessarily like you need to picture some sort of old man God who's going out to gather the animals instead of Noah, right? But nonetheless, the idea here is not that Noah has to go and find them, but that somehow, providentially, they will come to him. But then we have the question, it, it's here, it's a pair, a male and female of every animal, bird, reptile. Um, the only thing that's not mentioned in the list of animals that we found throughout Genesis going back to creation is the fish. And I assume that's pretty self-evident, okay? Um, but nonetheless, two of every type of bird, every type of animal, every type of reptile. And so the question becomes, uh, well, here's, here's a simple one that's worth us reviewing. Um, if this is meant to be as historical, then we would anticipate at the very least possibility. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you why I put it in that way. There is another flood story that's very famous. It's known as the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh. Okay, it's not merely a flood story, but it contains one. Do you know what the boat looks like in the Epic of Gilgamesh? It's a perfect cube made out of wood, and it's about 10 times larger than this one, okay? So you're basically talking uh, at that part, uh, how many stories is that? You're talking about a 30-story, and then if the building fell over, 30 stories by 30-story cube. Okay, we read that today, and suddenly this seems plausible, just in comparison. Um, on top of that, the dimensions that are given for this arc, the way that it lays out proportionately, length, height, and width, uh, is actually surprisingly stable. It's the same ratio we build boats from today, okay? And remember, this is not, uh, not presented as a nautical people in a nautical place, but nonetheless, if you were to build a boat like this to scale and put it in your bathtub and then make waves, it's not going to tip. Um, some mathematicians have said this thing could crest all the way to 90 degrees and still not flip and right itself, especially if it was loaded down fully, like what we're talking about here, okay? And so the measurements read realistically, even according to modern understandings of, of, of not, uh, I, was, I was gonna say nautics, I don't know what you call that, of the nautical sciences. Uh, it's consistent with what we would expect. In the same way, as much as when you think of animals and when you think of the ark, you naturally think of elephants 
you naturally think of giraffes, you naturally think of large animals, it's worth really thinking this through. And so um, there is a book that is interesting. I won't say that it's great, um, but it is interesting, known as the Genesis Record, and it's just simply a commentary on Genesis from a historical and scientific perspective. So they wrestle through these things. This section in particular I find to be really helpful um, because this is what they explain and how they explain it. Um, what Morris says in the Genesis record is when you take this space, we're talking about 1,400,000 cubic feet across these three stories, okay? He says if you were to take that and compare it to um, the same, uh, what do you call those? Um, I just labeled it sheep. There we go, livestock cars, right? Think of a train. So when we move livestock across the country, we do it in tra trains. Trains always have that same size car. In cubic feet, we're talking about 522 of those, okay? And so that's, that's a relatively long train, but still it doesn't tell us anything about the elephants, but there's a few things to keep in mind. Um, first off, if we were just moving sheep in those livestock cars, it's about 240 sheep per car, okay? So that's a total then of 125,000 sheep that you could load on the ark, okay, that would survive loaded on an ark of this space. Now, what's worth keeping in, um, in mind before we look at the numbers of exactly how many animals we're talking about is the average size of those animals, okay? So remember, we're talking here about mammals, um, we're talking about uh, uh, livestock, we're talking about reptiles, we're talking about amphibians, and we're talking about birds. What you have to remember is although there's lots and lots of animals lots and lots of them are relatively small, okay? And so there are way more that are the size of a bread box than there is the size of a house. On top of that, we also have to keep in mind that just because they're taking an elephant doesn't mean they're taking the biggest elephant or even a fully grown elephant, okay? Um, the, it's much easier to think of this thinking of younger animals and so if you, just, if you just concede me those things, which I don't think are that unbelievable. I know we're talking about a story that is inherently supernatural, okay? The flood is supernatural. It's, it's, it's handed out by God. It's expected and prophesied that it's going to happen. The warning is supernatural. The bringing of the animals is supernatural. And we'll see even the surviving the flood with all of those perks is still inherently a God thing, okay? Nonetheless, when we're looking for plausibility, here's what you need to keep in mind. If you take um, all of the species that we know of today, of mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians, we're talking about 18,000 types, 18,000 species, okay? Now, even if you double that to make room for uh, the species that have gone extinct, or even the ones that haven't been discovered, okay? At that point, you're at about 72,000 animals even when you recognize later on in the story that the livestock and the ones that are clean for sacrifices, he brings seven pairs instead of two, that only gets you to 75,000 individual animals going on this boat, okay? For the species we know, times two plus room for the seven pairs of clean animals. 75,000, okay? Now how many sheep could we fit? 125,000, that's 60%. And so is this believable? Probably not. Is it possible? You have to say yes. 
okay? If there was somebody who could gather up these animals today and load them on a ship this size, go to Kentucky to where they've built one, and load them on the ship this size, it's a doable thing, okay? That's worth keeping in mind. Now, let's continue on. And so, two of every kind, why? For breeding, obviously, right? The only way the species is going to survive is if there's a male and a female. Why do they bring more of the clean? Why do they need seven pairs? Why do we see that later? Because those are going to be used for sacrifices right after the flood. We'll see that. And also, they're going to be used to be eaten, okay? And so, they need more of those if the species is going to survive. Um, he's also supposed to bring food. And then notice, uh, notice the pattern is completed here. We'll see it again, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Okay, and so the pattern here is set up for us. God says, Noah does. And we'll see it again. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. And so there's a reiteration here and a new emphasis on seven pairs of all the clean animals as well as the birds. And then uh, verse four, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And so we see here now not just a, I'm going to do this eventually, but I'm going to do this in a week's time. We see the transition from the building of the ark to the loading of the ark, okay? Verse five, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Okay, so the cycle is repeated again. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. There's that emphasis again. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. Now, this pattern, as we mentioned, is repeating, but there's also a narrowing of scope here that's worth noticing. There was not just a new cycle here, but a repetition, okay? And so he's told to load the animals on, and then we see that happening. It says that this happened in the 600th year of Noah's life, and then notice how it zooms in from a week in the 600th year to the day on the day that it happens here in the last passage, in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were opened. Now, I want you to notice, in verse 11, it gives us a specific date for the event, and it's helpful for us to ask why. And the first thought is, because we've been following a chronology here, we have a genealogy in chapter 5 that's relatively specific. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, let me just remind you, um, the way that it rolls out is it mentions a man, tells us how long he lived till his first son, tells us how long he lived after his first son and when he died. Then it goes to that first son and it follows that line. And so there is a continuous chain from the beginning with Adam until the flood. And so at first we could go, well, maybe this gives us a date from creation for the flood, but it doesn't. And I bet you can guess why. It's 
because we don't know anybody's birthdays, right? It doesn't give us the days for anything. We have a general idea. We could point to the 600th year, and we could do the math back to creation and count that number, but why does it give us a specific date here? Now, another possibility is that there is some sort of um, numerological symbolism going on here. And it is worth pointing out, and I just find this to be intriguing. Okay, first, let's deal with a couple of things. Before you can ask what a date means, you have to know what calendar they're using. And in the ancient world, that's not guaranteed. Okay? We have systematized and standardized the calendar today, and it's consistent generally across all developed cultures. In the ancient world, even in the days of Jesus, that wasn't true. There were lots of different calendars. In fact, the Jews, just reducing it down to the options available to us in the Old Testament, use constantly two different calendars, one for their civil year and one for their religious year. And so there's a sense where their year starts in January, like ours does, and there's another sense where it starts with the high holiday months, okay? And so sometimes they use a religious counting and they count from the first holiday, and other times they count from the first day of the year like we think of it. So the question becomes, which calendar are they using? Here's what's interesting. If you follow the civil calendar, the, the ark comes to rest not only during the festival of Passover, but on the same day in the calendar year that Jesus rose from the dead. It's just an interesting observation. I don't think it can be justifiably the reason why the author in Genesis is putting this out, although it's worth mentioning that Genesis is part of a five-book series that culminates right, in the giving of the law that includes Passover. However, there is another reason why I think this date is probably here, and it's the same reason why you know the date that you got married. It's the same reason why you know the date that JFK was shot. The clearest reason for a date to be here is because they actually remembered the day, and they wrote it down, just like we were just like we would. It was common for the people in my parents' generation to ask, where were you when, right? And, and we do it with 9-11. Where were you on 9-11? And we share our stories. We, we tie our timeline to this historical event. The most likely reason why we have a date given here is because this is kind of a big deal. This is when it happened, okay? And so, so I would say that we find a date here not because the author is trying to help us understand the date, but because the date is traditional with the original record, that it goes back to the beginning, that it can be pointed to. And so as it was a significant day, this is what happens. Now, what exactly happened? It says two things happened on this day, second, uh, second half of verse 11 here. The fountains of the great deep, verse 4, and the windows of heaven were opened, Okay. And so what we see here is water from two directions. What's referred to as the great deep and fountains and then the windows of heaven. Now, it is possible if you just read Genesis and lay aside everything you know from your experience which is inherently post-flood. If you just read Genesis as it is, the phenomenon of rain doesn't exist yet. And this, by the way, is not an argument of silence. I'm not saying no rainy days are mentioned so rain must not have happened. I'm pointing us back to the beginning in the book of Genesis when it talks about the creation of the man and it says, now there was no rain in those days, but a mist came up from the ground and watered the plants. In fact, some people who have tried to scientifically understand what's going in this book have assumed its historicity and then said what it would look like, what would it look like scientifically, have looked at the way that the um, initial chapters of Genesis talk about water in particular. 
and I'll remind you of it. It says, uh, it says first that God separates the water from the water, and then he separates the water from the land, okay? So there are some who have gone, maybe what it's talking about, this separation of water from water is a much stronger water-based atmospheric realm around the earth. And then they ask the question, what would that be like? And effectively, what it would be like is, first off, no danger from UV rays, okay? This is, this is like the opposite of a greenhouse effect. Uh, it's a greenhouse effect in the good sense. Uh, it would have made it, uh, it would have amaclitized the climate to be relatively consistent and tropical around the globe um, in the same way that if you insulate your house, it keeps the heat in, right? Uh, it wouldn't have allowed for major weather patterns, including rain as well as heavy wind, right? Because all of those things are caused by this change in climate happening all around us, okay? Not only is that interesting to think about, but it's also important because the flood that's mentioned here covers the highest mountains known to this region by 15 cubits, okay? By enough that the boat could sail over it even when it's sitting deep in the water. Um, for that to be the case, we literally can exhaust every cloud in the atmosphere right now and not get there, okay? But I want you to notice that in, in the way that the Bible talks about uh, climate prior, prior to the flood, as well as we'll see when everything closes, one of the promises God makes in the covenant to Noah when he says it'll never be like this, he makes it rooted in the regularity of the systems that we know for weather, for seasons. We'll see this later, okay? And so maybe that's the beginning of those things is the way it presents. But more importantly, here it talks about two things. First off, the windows of heaven being opened, okay? Uh, and then second, the fountains of the great deep being, being broken up. And so whatever this is, it's more than just rain. It's more than just a whole lot of rain, okay? This is, like I said, cataclysmic, and we see this deep underground source of water suddenly no longer being underground. Now, even with that being said, there's a lot that it doesn't tell us, right? And one of the reasons is because the, the answers to the questions that you have, they're not questions that would have been asked in these days, right? Nobody's thinking, now, now what are the seismological, you know, aspects of, of what we're talking about here, you know? What, what does this say about the way that our um, Teutonic plates work, right? All of those things aren't, aren't relevant to the original audience. But here, what it imagines is basically things breaking at both ends, okay? And so we have this tremendous downpour. And like I said, some who have tried to think about this scientifically see this as being, um, actually, the description I read of it was, was pretty interesting today. If you begin with the fountains of the deep breaking up, that's basically, think of like soda pop pressure giving way and so breaking through the crust of the earth, these types of things. Um, something that just merely a change in temperature at the center of the earth would have happened as well as things like, like an asteroid or, and I'll be honest, some people have suggested aliens with nukes. Um, it, we, we just, we don't know, it's irrelevant, but if you start from that, that there's some sort of cause and there's an upheaval on the ground, what that's going to do is throw a good deal of soil and such into the atmosphere, and what that's going to do is act as places for condensation, right? And so this relatively floaty atmosphere made up of moisture now has something to cling to, and as it does, it starts to come down, okay? It's just an interesting way to think about this, but it's important to recognize here that the language is not merely rain, okay? Uh, it's, it's something larger than that, and then let's continue. 
Um, so verse 11, the fountains of the great deep, verse 4, and the windows of heaven were opened, verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. Now, if you just read these last three paragraphs in chapter 7 back to back, it sounds so redundant that you're like, wait, didn't we just read this? But the reason is because it's zooming in the camera and making it more intense. And so it's building up the tension of what's about to happen uh, and then making us feel it more. And so we feel as it's a week out in the preparations. We feel as it's the day of. And then we feel as if they're literally running into the boat, right? The tension is the thing that's rising. Um, and we'll watch here as the waters rise, that tension keeps going up, okay? If you were to make a symphony about the flood, it's building, obviously, right? And it's going to continue to build till it crescendos, and we'll get there. Verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Okay, and so we see one more reiteration of, of Noah's obedience. Um, and then it says the Lord shut him in. And so the final emphasis here is that they all get on the boat and then somehow God closes them in. Okay? Now this is, in my opinion, most likely saying what it means. There's a commentator I appreciate greatly and he just says this. He says, if the word of God doesn't mean what it says, then who can say what it means? And what he's trying to get at is as soon, as soon as we deny the most likely reading of Scripture, then we just open the doors for any reading of Scripture, okay? Um, it is possible here, though, that this is just speaking of the fact that God is with Noah. In fact, there's a good reason to believe that because, um, let's see if I can spot it here. Okay, you can't see it in the English, but if you go all the way back to chapter 7, 1, it says go into the ark. That's a natural way for us to say this, but in the Hebrew, it's literally come into the ark. Okay, so God is speaking as if he's present in the ark. He's inviting them in, not sending them away. And so it may be here that this statement that the Lord shut him in is just a recognition of what's about to happen is only safe and is only possible because God is right there present. Um, that, by the way, is a primary theme the flood okay God's care in taking care of Noah Noah we'll see that um, as we look at how the other Bible views that or how the rest of the Bible views this event verse 17 the flood continued 40 days on the earth the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam, uh, swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Okay. Do you see how it's building there to a crescendo? 
And so first it just says that the water fell and then the water prevailed and then it mightily prevailed. It says that the water raised the ark and then the ark was floating on the waters and then it's floating over the mountains. Everything here is building up to a point. In fact, there is a pattern of um, structure that we find throughout the Bible in Hebrew literature and in Greek called a chiasmus, okay? It comes from the Greek letter chi or chi, which looks like an X, okay? And so chiastic uh, structure, basically A and Z match, and then B and Y match. And so if you follow the structure of the story, it moves into a center and then it moves back out. That's not a common way of American storytelling. We either work directly from beginning to end, and we like to end away from where we begin, or we tell the ending, and then we go back to the beginning and come up against it. Those are the two common modern Western ways of storytelling, but chiasm is really, really prevalent uh, in the storytelling, both in the Old Testament and the New. I'll give you one illustration that you can study on your own. If you look at Luke chapter 24, the um, story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who encounter Jesus risen. Just follow the pattern. They go to Emmaus, Jesus is revealed, and then they come back from Emmaus. And it's not just that simple principle of, of geography, but the lines line up. So the beginning part and the end part match, the second to beginning and the second end match, all the way in. And with a chiastic structure, if there's something that stands alone at the center, that's the emphasis of the story. Right? That's why it's so different than Western storytelling that likes the climax to be as close to the end as possible. When we don't do that, we get the last 15 minutes of the Lord of the Rings saga, and we're like, how could we possibly care about the Shire when the ring's already been destroyed? Right? <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But, but in, in Hebrew storytelling, the climax is so in the center that you could just rest, rest a board on it, and it would balance perfectly. It's always designed that way, and so... I want you to notice as we're building here, we're going to hit the clear transition, the resolve of the story, and then it's going to slowly go the other way, okay? Um, so verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Okay. Once again, I want you to notice that this language is exclusively universal. The author's pulling out every synonym he can think of to say nothing survived. Right? He's emphasizing the, the tremendous cataclysm uh, that is here. Now, Verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I don't know if this is worth you knowing, but I will point out that if you want to, the chronology of the flood to work, that 150 days includes the 40 days of rain, okay? Which is not actually that weird of a thing to say, but if you just take the 40 days and 40 nights, add it to the 150, add it to the next one, things are going to fall apart. That's why. I don't know if you're that type of math nerd, but I wanted to throw it out there. Um, chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. There it is. There's our centerpiece. There's the climax. And so uh, the rains came down, and the floods went up, and that escalates and escalates, and then we see the full destruction outside of the ark, and then it climaxes with, but God 
remembered Noah. Okay. Now, this word remember here, for, for us, that's a very simple concept. For the Hebrews, it carries an important idea. It's an idiom, a Hebrew expression um, that has to do with the idea of acting on behalf of. Okay. And so you can say that God remembered Noah. In the Hebrew mindset, you can't say that God forgot Noah until he remembered. Okay. This is not like home alone. That's not what's going on here. Okay. Um, but the idea is, despite everything that we saw, God is with Noah. God is present and he's there. And therefore, therefore, it says, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, here's another thing that I love about Hebrew storytellers that, that we just have not mastered in the West. And I have an assumption that Russian literature is this way, and that's why I can't read it. But Hebrew literature always does more than one thing at the same time. And so while it's telling this climax, it's also pointing back to the beginning. And what we get in the story of the flood is echoes of Eden. Okay? And so, uh, so for example, here we see that that all that God has done is a reversal of all that God had done. So there was a separation of the waters and there was a separation of the land and the water and all of that is gone. All of that goes backwards. So we find ourselves in a pre-creation condition and what does it say here? It says that he sent his spirit over the waters and it's the same word ruach from Genesis 1 verse 2 when it says the spirit of God hovered over the faces of the waters. Now, if you were just reading Genesis through and you had started in chapter one and moved here, that bell is probably going to ring and it's not the only one because we also have all of the animals present in this and we're going to have basically Adam Mark II. Noah's going to be in his own little paradise. He's going to plant a vineyard. It's going to be his own little garden and we get to see again a new set of first parents, right? Because we can't just all in different paths trace our line to Adam and Eve, we can actually trace it to Noah because of this event and then directly through Noah's line to Adam. And so in the same way that Adam and Eve are our common ancestors, wherever your origins come from, that's also true of Noah. And so you see so much language that's pointing this way. In fact, even Lamech's naming of Noah. Lamech was Noah's father and he names him prophetically. He says, I name him Noah, rest, because he will give us rest from the curse, okay? And so everything here is pointing to this, this um, not just destruction, but recreation. Now, later on, this flood, this universal judgment becomes a picture of a judgment that is to come. And I'll show you one of these passages later, but I want you to recognize as when we get there that even that judgment is seen in the context of a new creation, okay? That that pattern is going to be repeated Again, that the same um, nuances are intentionally laid there, but we'll save that for later. It says here that God remembered Noah. He made a wind blow all of the earth and the waters subsided. Okay, now verse two, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continuously. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, when it says here the mountains of Ararat, you may have a different translation, but the word there is plural. So it doesn't tell us exactly where the ark landed. It gives us the mountain range, okay? 
Um, but nonetheless here, we see as it was prevailing and prevailing, now it's subsiding and subsiding, and it's gotten to the point where some peaks of mountains have been exposed, and then when the ark comes to rest and is just sitting there. Um, and the date is given again. Now, when you put the dates together, it's worth recognizing the scale here, okay? Here's another place that this differs from the Gilgamesh epic, okay? The Gil Gilgamesh e epic is seven days of rain and then seven days of abatement. The entirety of the world is wiped out in two weeks' time. With what we're talking about here, it comes up to 53 weeks, okay? Noah, his family, these animals are on this boat for over a year, okay? This is a huge event. Um, okay, so verse 5 of chapter 8, the waters continue to abate until the 10th month, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. Okay. And so here, I'm going to put ourselves in Noah's shoes for just a second. He's restless. He knows that the worst is over. He knows that the storm is done. He's seeing land showing up, uh, but he's wondering really what's going out there. And so it seems like what he does is just try a little experiment. And it's worth mentioning, although I didn't have time to really press the parallels in my studies, um, that much later in the world, a way of looking for land for nautical explorers was birds, okay? Because if you release a bird and you're in the middle of an ocean, the bird's going to come back. But if you're near land, he's going to find a place and he's not coming home, okay? Because tree versus boat, it's an easy, easy choice, right? Um, and so that's what's going on here. Um, the first bird that he releases is a raven, okay? Uh, and so what happens here? Um, it says here in verse 7, he sent out a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And so it's just going around. It's a carrion bird. Uh, it's, it's a smorgasbord for a carrion bird out there, right? Uh, it makes me think, every time I read this, of Templeton from, um, from Charlotte's Web, right? If you've ever seen the anima animated one, he sings this song as he goes to the fairground and eats the smorgasbord, orgasbord. Um, but that's always what I think of. But nonetheless, so he sends out a raven. He waits a little bit longer, verse 8. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had sub uh, subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her, and he brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a flesh freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Now, when we ask ourselves why this is included in the narrative, at first it's really hard to answer. And I'll show you why, because look at verse 12. Then he waited another, or sorry, uh, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Okay? So the pattern we're seeing here is an experiment in three parts, and then he, he just peels open a part of the ark, and he looks outside, and he can see dry ground. Okay? But, verse, uh, verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wives. Then he leaves, okay? 
So my point is here, whatever he's doing the experiment for, it doesn't get him off the boat. And even when he sees for his own, in his own eyes, as he looks out and he says, oh, there's dry ground everywhere, he stays on the boat, okay? And we have to ask ourselves why. And there's really only two options. One is he's absolutely terrified, okay? And I don't think that's actually that bad of a thing. The only place of safety in the entire known world for a year's time has been this boat. How much convincing is it going to take you to get off the boat? But what else have we seen in the pattern of Noah's life? As much as he's a doer, he's an obedient doer. He's a listener. And so it's not his experimentation that gets him off the boat. It's not even his own observation that gets him off the boat. Once again, it's the word of God. Obviously, the idea that's being presented here uh, is, is of this, this obedient servant. And I don't want to contrast, um, you know, your own senses and observation or your abilities to discern the world around you and the word of God. However, however, there's something to be said, especially in our world, for understanding the value of waiting on the Lord. There's something to be said in our modern time where we want answers now and we don't really wait very well to recognize that the Bible constantly puts a positive emphasis on waiting. Okay. Moses. Moses, at the age of 40, tries to break up a fight because he sees a Egyptian taskmaster mistreating one of his brethren, the servants, he's been raised in the king's courts. These other ones have been slaves their whole life. He finally recognizes he should use his privilege to do something about it. It turns into a big thing, and he ends up killing the taskmaster. He buries him. A few days later, he sees two Jewish men arguing, and he tries to come between them and say, hey, you guys are brothers. You shouldn't be arguing. You aren't the enemies. You know, you're not one another's enemies. There's another enemy. There's a bigger fight. And they go, are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? And he realizes that it's gotten around, that he's a murderer, and so he runs away. Now, here's what you may not know about that story that Stephen tells us in the book of Acts. He says that Moses did those things knowing that he was destined to deliver Israel. Okay? At the age of 40, Moses knew that God had a plan for him. But he was also 40 years too early. It wasn't until 40 years later that God comes and says, okay, Moses, now is the time that you were destined for. Now is the reason. And now Moses doesn't even want the job, right? But the point is this, that oftentimes we, we forget to recognize the difference between being called to something and being sent. Okay. Noah has been promised he's going to get off this boat. But there's still some, even if we can't pick it apart, as interpreters, there's still some value he finds in waiting for the go-ahead, okay? And one of the things that waiting does, very simply put, is it helps us to discern the voice of the Lord. How far do you think Moses would have gotten in his own power and his own strength until he hit the difficulties and then started to question his calling? How different was it? When he finally goes and goes with all of the miraculous support of God and the burning bush experience and the clear command of God, how different is it for him to stand his ground there? In the same way here, when Noah gets off the boat, he does so with a good conscience. Okay, now the next thing I want you to notice uh, is not only does God command him to get off the ark, 
verse 17, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. There's another echo, right? That was the command that was given not only to Adam and Eve, but also to all of the animals. And here it begins again, okay? Notice uh, verse 18. So Noah went out obediently, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out by the f- their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Now here's another striking thing about Noah as a character. What's the first thing he does? The first thing he does when he gets off the boat is build an altar and recognize here that altar means sacrifice. And what is he sacrificing? The last animals in existence, okay, after a worldwide flood. He has uh, been living off of, clearly not animals, right, as he's been on this boat. Uh, there's, he doesn't build himself shelter, right? There's so many things that are severe about this. Once again, getting back to that scientific side, if a flood like this happened, um, it would be so cataclysmic that he's not walking out into the tropical world he came from. And the weather patterns from here on out are, are as chaotic as the ones we know now and probably worse because it's going to take a while for things to settle. Some scholars actually believe that this coincides very well with an ice age, okay? um, with the ice age that we know probably happened. Um, but, but nonetheless, the first thing he does is he build an, builds an altar. Notice what it says, verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Okay, why does Noah do this? Gratitude, right? He's grateful that God has kept him, protected him, delivered him. And so the first thing he does is he responds in worship. He offers a burnt offering and later in the law, the burnt offering, which means that the entirety of the sacrifice was consumed. Some of the other offerings that Israel offered were shared with the priests or shared with the worshipers themselves, but the burnt offering was burned entirely. It was a Holocaust offering. Everything was consumed on the altar. That's the type of offering that he mentions. And it's generally recognized as an offering of full dedication. Okay? The sacrifice is standing in your place, and what you're saying is, I give myself entirely to you. I dedicate myself to you, and you symbolize this with the offering. There is a direct correlation in the Bible between gratitude and that type of an offering. Even for Christians, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul, after laying out everything that God has done for us in the gospel, says this, I urge you, therefore, brethren, because of God's mercies, what God has done, that you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship, which is an appropriate response to what God has done, would be a paraphrase of what he's saying there. And so we see the same thing with Noah. He recognizes that if God has so miraculously warned him and prepared him and protected him and delivered him, that the only appropriate response is to give all of himself to that God. I want to remind you again, especially for those of you who weren't weak, there is no, there is no distinguishing from Noah and the wicked world where every intention of the thoughts of mind were always evil continuously. God has graciously just seen Noah, chosen Noah, and plucked him out of this, okay? He can't distance himself and say, because I was right, because I was good, 
because I was less violent, because I was still smart, whatever it was, he can draw no line in the sand and say that he shouldn't be like the dead. And so he naturally recognizes that the appropriate response to that is, is that he's no longer his own person. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, for you were bought with a price, you were not your own. So, he worships, and look at how God responds here. Verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Wait, what? Are, are you reading that closely with me? If you go back, that's a clear parallel of the sentence that God had laid out in the earth. The Lord saw that the whole world, every man's intentions were always evil continuously. And here it says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I'll never bring another flood. I'll never bring this judgment again because, he says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, if we were talking about a different God in a different book, then maybe this is God confessing failure. That he looks at Noah and although he smells the sacrifice, he goes, I know Noah's not any better. I tried to cleanse the earth, and look, one of them survived, right? Uh, it is worth mentioning. In some of the flood parallels we have, when the gods discover that the Noah-type character's alive, they're shocked. They can't believe it. But here, that's, that's not what's going on at all, is it? What he's saying here maybe would be better paraphrased by saying, I will never do this even though, okay? Simply put, Here's how we know that Lamech, Noah's father, was wrong. We see a, a, a pattern in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament of saying, is now the time that God sets things right? Is it going to happen now? Now is this the fulfilling of your plan? Is it happening right here? Is it happening right now? And here we discover that God says, I haven't fixed anything yet. I don't want to reduce down the consequential judgment on an entire planet of people to a lesson to be learned. I think that would be insensitive and I think it would be foolish. But I do want to point out that God allows the patterns of history to play out long enough to see how things are actually going to go. Okay, And so here God is saying even though I haven't fixed things, even though this is going to be a continuous problem, even though I have a plan to fix it and this wasn't it, he says I'm not going to do this again. He continues on here. He says, Neither again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so now he says regularity, consistency. You can expect there not to be a worldwide flood tomorrow is what he says. But I want you to recognize how many of those terms, uh, from a t scientific perspective, if we had this big cataclysm, would be relatively new things like seasons. Okay, summer and winter, heat and cold. He says, now there is this continuity. Now there's this universality, uh, this um, expectation. And he lays it out and he promises that that's going to be consistent till the end of the world. Okay. Chapter nine. And God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered okay now he's going to clarify that in just a second but what we recognize here is a breakdown between the human and the animal kingdom okay 
And here it's, it's set up strategically as a survival mechanism. It's good for the mankind and it's good for the animals. Let's just recognize this is going to be a world of scarcity, okay? But also there's another element in this. Notice as he continues here, verse thir- uh, three, every moving thing uh, that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Okay, and so the dietary restrictions that were laid out in the beginning of the story of Genesis for Adam and Eve is now broadened to include the eating of meat. And it's, uh, it's worth mentioning that transition and the obvious reason for it, okay? Even though Noah plants a vineyard first thing, it's going to take a while to bear fruit. His reserves are going to run out. Um, the reason why they brought clean animals was not just for sacrifices, but also to eat. But we find out here that that hadn't been the pattern up to this point, at least not the God-sanctioned pattern, okay? Um, but coexisting with that is the dread of all animals. In other words, they're going to be weary of, uh, or leery, is that the word I want? Leery of humans, right? They're going to keep their distance. There's going to be a danger involved. In fact, some people believe that the predatory aspect of animals may begin with this as well. I know I referred to the raven as a predatory bird, um, but if you go back to the beginning, it doesn't speak of animals eating other animals either, and since it roots death entirely in the fall, it's a consequence there or here. It doesn't really matter where you put it. Um, Verse 4, however, you shall not eat flesh with, with its life, that is the blood. So he says, although you will eat of animals, you won't eat them with their, lo- with their blood intact. And there's this correlation between the blood and the life. And it's not until the sacrificial system that this really starts to get unpacked, but it has to do with the fact that there is value in life, not just human life, but animal life, and it's not to be taken for granted. And it goes as far to say in the law a couple of times, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so here we see this concept, and it's just being drawn to our attention to say, hey, pay attention. And this restriction is given that they're not to eat it with the blood in it, that they're to um, not eat the living but the dead, if you will. And then he makes a comparison, verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. And so what he says here is whether an animal kills a man or a man kills a man, I will require a reckoning. If you go back to the beginning of the flood, one of the descriptions that's given for that time is that violence covered the earth. And so here God says, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm going to do something about that. And here's what's really interesting. It's hidden here by this phrase, fellow man, but that's just the Hebrew word for brother, which is another iteration. It's another echo. Because what does Cain proclaim after killing his brother? Am I my brother's keeper? God affirms that here. He says, yes, you are. There is accountability for taking the life of another person. Notice as it's put in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so he roots here the value of human life against murder in the fact that mankind was created in the image of God. And he says because of that, mankind is held accountable for murder. Now, this is not about vengeance. This is not if someone kills, then you can kill them. In fact, that's the exact problem that we encountered in Cain's great-great-great-great-grandson, 
Lamech, um, right? This man who who uh, took a life and has now threatened to make sure and avenge anyone who reaches out to avenge that life, right? That's not what's being talked about here. Most commentators recognize what we have here is effectively government. It's the recognition not that a man will respond to shed a man's blood, but that mankind will respond to hold men as individuals accountable. In fact, from the Jewish understanding, the definition of being self-governing is the ability to carry out capital punishment. Okay? And they say, where does that begin? It begins right here. In fact, we've seen a little bit of an evolution. If you're a dispensationalist, which basically just means you think the best way to understand the story that the Bible tells is that God does things differently and there's an, an evolving section of dispensations, um, then we've seen a dispensation of conscience, right? The knowledge of good and evil, this internal thing, and now it moves into a dispensation of government, of organized collective accountability. Now, one of the ways to view dispensationalism is as a constant failure of man to be able to deal with sin, right? And so Adam and Eve know what's wrong. Cain knows what's wrong. You know what's wrong. It doesn't help you not to do wrong. Here we see it widening out to the existence of government, men banding together to resist the evil of the few, right? To make sure that there's accountability and consequence. And yet where do we find government? Not just very quickly in the Bible, but in our own world with injustice with corruption, with failure and falsity and these types of things. But nonetheless, the, the foundational principle of government for, from a biblical viewpoint is this accountability. When it really matters, when somebody brings another person's life to its end, right? And uh, it is possible here to view this not as being pro-capital punishment, but it is difficult. The only way to do that is to say that God is promising that he's going to avenge, which is something that he says at other places, but when he says it, he puts it in the hands of government, okay? So when you get to Romans 13, he tells us specifically not to avenge because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and then he says, I've given the government the sword for that very reason, okay? And so government's existence is God-ordained to maintain order, to promote good, and to deal with evil, as it says in another place in the scriptures. But it begins here. There's accountability for these things. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now back in chapter 6, this is exactly what God said he'd do. I will establish a covenant with you, but we don't find the content of that covenant till now, and it's worth taking just a few minutes to explain what the Bible means by the word covenant, okay? The closest thing we have in day-to-day -day modern life is a contract, okay? But there's a major difference between a contract and a covenant, okay? A contract is an agreement for the exchange of goods or services, right? You will do this work, I will pay you this much. You will give me this object, I will give you this service in return. Whatever it is, that's contractual. A covenant is about loyalty. It's not the giving of your goods or services, it's the giving of yourself, okay? And so you're not just promising your goods, you're promising your loyalty. Um, the God we find throughout the Bible is a God who makes covenants, who's interested in this tremendously relational interaction of promises, 
Um, in fact, this is not the only covenant we find. The Noahic covenant is followed by the Abrahamic covenant, where he makes a covenant with Abraham. And then we find the, um, what's sometimes called the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant that he makes with Abraham, that I'm going to give you this land. There's the Davidic covenant that one of your descendants will rule and reign eternally. And then when you get to the prophets, they start talking about the coming new covenant, the one that Jesus referred to on the last night before he was betrayed when he broke the bread and he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, And so what you see is this progressive plan of God laid out covenantially in promises of faithfulness. Now, we'll deal with this as we go on, um, but here, God is making promises to Noah and his descendants. In fact, he's not just making promises to Noah and his descendants, but to animals. Look at what it says here in verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds and livestock, and every beast of the earth that's with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that I will never again or sorry, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so he promises here, there won't be another universal flood. This is the final nail in the coffin of, of trying to reduce this down to something minimal. It's the fact that local floods still happen. Okay? But God says what we're talking about in these chapters isn't going to happen again. He continues here, he says, um, verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And so it would be one easy reading to say every time we see a rainbow, we have a reminder that storms end, right? That there's not this perpetual flood that's always at risk here. Um, but it's worth mentioning here that God doesn't say that the rainbow is for us, although it does have that aspect. The rainbow is for him. He says, I will see it and remember. But remember, the idea here is not that he forgets. And so he's like, oh, I'm so mad at them. Again, I'm about to do it. And then he sees the rainbow and goes, oh, okay, I remember I made a promise. That's not the idea here. <laughs> in fact, it may be in the ancient world, because we find this symbolism elsewise, that the bow is a perfect example of this because it reminds us of the bow as a weapon. And so the idea here is a constant reminder that God has hung his bow. Okay? But nonetheless, the emphasis here is that God is going to be faithful to this promise. Right? That's why there's this reiteration. And he says here that the covenant has a sign because covenants always have a sign. And so there's the Adamic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve. And even though it's not called a covenant there, in the minor prophets it is referred to as one. And not only that, but it also has a sign. It's the seventh day, the Sabbath. Okay? The Mosaic covenant has a sign attached to it, and that's circumcision. The new covenant has a sign attached to it, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, you may have been expecting me to say baptism or even communion, but the way that it's talked about, most likely it's the giving of the Spirit that is this sign, this symbol of God's faithfulness. He continues on here. He says in verse 15, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and all the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bows in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh 
that is on the earth. And so this promise is given here. Um, and the question then becomes, okay, so what, what do we do with the flood? What, what does it mean? What is it trying to point to? And interestingly enough, when we look at the rest of the story of Scripture, we find it referred to in a couple of ways. Okay? The first one that I want to draw your attention to is Jesus. Jesus takes this flood and he points to it and he says, when I return, in the consummation of all ages, when, uh, when judgment happens and everything leading up to the great right throne judgment happens, in other words, when the world comes to an end, he says it will be as it was in the days of Noah. And he clarifies, and what he says, this is in um, Matthew chapter 24, he says, just as they were eating and drinking and marrying in the days of Noah, and then the flood, so also will it be. Okay? And so his emphasis is that the flood was sudden and unexpected, and even where it was expected, it was unbelieved. Right? We have to imagine that people walked up to Noah and said, what you, what you building there? Right? We have to imagine that he tried to explain the consequence of what was coming, and they laughed at him just as people laugh about the flood today. Jesus picks up on that, and he says, it's going to be the same. Why? Because human nature is the same. And we have a tendency to feel like, well, I woke up yesterday. I'll wake up tomorrow. I, you know, I experienced the same things yesterday. I'll experience them tomorrow. But the simple thing is that Jesus promises that the end of the world will be an interruption. It's not going to be on your calendar. And we already know this to be true just from the individual sense because it's the same with death. Death is the one appointment you never get to schedule. Okay? And so it's going to come as a surprise. There will be things undone. When I was young and familiar with Christianity, identifying as a Christian but hadn't actually encountered Christ yet, I remember praying all the time, Jesus, come back, but not until I get my license. I just, I just, I just, there were things I wanted to do. But Jesus says that the flood should be a constant reminder to us that there is a plan and there is a schedule and you don't know all of it. And so we have to live in the present and with awareness. Every time Jesus says, I'm coming back, he gives two commands. Therefore, watch and work. Okay. Not talk about it, not sit passively. Not give up and surrender your responsibilities. Work, but do it looking up for your redemption draws near, okay? With expectation. The early church had a, th had a saying that they said all the time, Maranatha means come Lord Jesus. We also find it discussed in 2 Peter, and he does it in the same way. But I want you to notice in 2 Peter, he picks up on those echoes, those iterations, the broader story of the flood. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, this is now the second letter that I am writing you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so we see here that he says that there will come a time, and I don't think he's talking about our time. He's talking about all times. 
He's talking, he's recognizing the same thing that Jesus recognized, that people are going to mock the idea of a worldwide judgment, of eternal judgment, of an end of the world, because it's never happened before. All right? But he continues on and he says this. He says, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same words, the heaven and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what does he say here? Why hasn't the end come? Because God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to uh, repentance, because he's patient and because he's long-suffering. And then he finishes here. He says, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so his application that Peter gives is a good one here. He says, if this is where things are going, and if you're not guaranteed a timeline or a duration or a passage of time, if the only thing restraining the end is simply God's patience and his long suffering, what kind of person should you be? How should you feel about the things in your life? Moses prays an interesting thing in one of the Psalms. He basically says, God, help me to know that I'm going to die. For human beings, it's surprisingly easy to forget that. And I think one of the things that's actually most offensive about the idea of a worldwide judgment is that we forget this reality. There's a constant and regular world of consequence where lives really do end. And I know yours didn't end yesterday. That's why you're here. But that doesn't change the pattern. But there's one other way that uh, the Bible looks at this, and it's actually my favorite, not because of content, but because of one of the first times the Bible opened up to me and taught me something I didn't see before all on my own. The first time, if I, if I could use the metaphor that I translated from being fed by someone else to preparing a meal for myself was in this, in Psalm 29. In Psalm 29, David is watching a storm. And he watches and he explains as the storm, which he constantly refers to as the voice of the Lord. He watches as it moves from over the sea, over the forest of Lebanon, into Jerusalem. And he's watching this storm. And it's a big enough one that it says in one place, the voice of the Lord causes the deer to give birth. Okay, so there's this natural phenomenon. When things get really bad, wherever they're at on, on pregnancy, animals will just, now is the time to deliver, okay? And it doesn't matter if what that leads to is the mother being able to get away faster or the child surviving, you know, because it, it, whatever the cis symptom is, it's something we can observe. And he says it's that type of storm. But I want you to listen 
to how this psalm ends. He's watching the storm. We know that he sees beauty in it because he constantly refers to this storm as the voice of the Lord. Um, He mentions fires being started by lightning, so we know that it's extreme. But this is how he finishes Psalm 29. Um, So I'll pick up in verse 7 here. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. Do you hear the contrast there? It's really easy to read things and not notice what it's saying, but it's not expected. Outside the temple, we have chaos. We have destruction. We have fear. We have terror. We have running. Inside the temple, we have praise. Outside the ark, we had everything going to hell. Inside, we have safety. Now, notice how he sums this up. He says, verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And it uses that same word for cataclysm, that same word for that flood. What he's saying is, look, even when the flood was happening, God was on the throne. God was present and in control. It looks like chaos. It feels like chaos. It feels so universal. There's nothing else that's real in the world. But he says on that day, the Lord sat on the throne. He continues, he says, the Lord sits as enthroned as the king forever. He was in control then. In your little storms today, in whatever you're going through, in the darkest of times, God's still on the throne. And this is what I love about the flood. If that is under God's control, if it's not unrestrained and overwhelming, if it's universal flood, God is still in charge, then what do we have to be afraid of? Who should we fear? This is how he finishes with an exhortation, the final verse here in verse 11. He says, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. How is it that we can navigate the storms with praise instead of fear? How is it that we can keep these truths in mind? He says here that God gives us both peace and strength. And I know us, so I know what we want when we say peace is an end of conflict. But that's not what the Bible promises. It promises a table prepared in the presence of your enemies, right? A banquet on the front lines of the fight. It promises peace, not that makes sense, not where all the answers are given, but a peace, as Paul says, that surpasses understanding. But it's peace nonetheless. And then strength. What you want so often in the difficulties of your life is freedom from them. And instead, God gives us the strength to endure them. But the flood is a tremendous reminder of the fact that the worst that you're going through isn't unexpected by God, isn't out of God's control, doesn't interfere with his good plan for you. That's why Paul can say all things work together for good to those who are called and those who love God. Because they're not interruptions to the plan. They're not exceptions to the plan. They're not detours and they're not putting the pause on plan. Sometimes they're the plan. Let's pray. Father, like one of the greatest needs we have as human beings, and especially as Christians who desire to do your will, is ears to hear. And so in that sense, I pray that we'd be like 
knowing. That the, the determinant factor in the things we do, in the things we say, in the perspective we have on life would be through that lens. I pray that we'd recognize, as Peter also says, that there's a parallel between these eight souls who were saved through water because the Lord shut them in and all of us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the actions of another, delivered and through baptism have passed through death and entered into life. And I pray our response would be like Noah, that we would be on our knees, that we would build an altar of our lives and present it to you. And we would recognize that compared to the flood, compared to the end, that even even in all of the horrible things that the book of Revelation at the very end starts to unpack and says is coming, that we can stand with John, recognize all of that horror and say, even so come Lord Jesus. Because you're the self-same God. That the one who is coming to judge the world, even though that involves wrath, is the Lamb of God who came and died for the world. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the places that we understand it better tonight. We pray that you'd help us to continue to build on our understanding, not merely for knowledge, but to know who you are so we can better know you personally. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night, everyone.